0: Today's episode is sponsored by Alliance Leisure, the UK's leading leisure development specialist. Over the last 30 years, Alliance has worked with numerous local authorities to design and develop community sustainable leisure environments that encourage active lives, promote community cohesion, and tackle health inequalities. With a diverse portfolio of more than 220 leisure developments, ranging from single site projects to multi million pound complete leisure portfolio transformations. Alliance Leisure services can be procured through the UK Leisure Framework. The framework is open to all public sector organisations in the UK. For more information, visit allianceleisure.co.uk. It's fair to say that at the present time, leaders within the public sector have never faced more challenge, nor needed more support than they do right now. And I'm delighted today to have an expert who provides leaders with unparalleled support and advice in Stuart Rees, who is a leadership mentor, coach, supporter. Stuart, thank you so much for taking time to speak to the podcast today. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Matt, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm a, I'm a listener to the podcast, so I know what, what to expect.
0: Well, it's thank God it's not just my mum, because my mum you know, probably <laughs> does equate to nice little listenership, but thank you very much. Um, The first question I have for you, Do you think that in the modern society that we live in now, the role that leaders and chief executives play has got tougher?
1: Well, look, I'm I'm 54, Matt. So my first job in local government was when I was 18. And I was the audit assistant at Dover District Council. And I remember being like I was given a note by my boss. He said, The chief exec needs this, he's in a meeting. Go and give him to this, give this to him. And I found the meeting room he was in, and he was there with his leadership team, and I, I knocked on the door, and they they waited no, three minutes before I was allowed in, and I, and I went in the room, and there were six middle-aged white men, all in pinstripe suits and three-piece suits and ties, sitting around a table, drinking tea from, uh, like, China cups that had been brought to them by a woman on a trolley, and the, and the director of finance was sitting in the corner, puffing away on a pipe, like, in the meeting. And I've, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, I've got a note for the chief executive. Which one of you is it? <laughs> and one of them put his hand up and he took the note from me and I left the room. And I was absolutely terrified. But if I think back to that scene, you would not see anything like that at all in local government now. It's changed so much. And I, I said I'm 54. Like A lot of chief executives who I, who I work with. They're, they're about my age, or they're a bit younger, or they're a bit older. And they've seen the sort of transformation that's come through. Like you wouldn't the, the chief exec wouldn't expect to get a note written on a piece of paper. He'd have sent a WhatsApp to my boss and got an answer in 20 seconds these days. So the the kind of speed at which things are done is so, so different. We've got digitalization, we've got IT, we've got AI. We haven't even scratched the surface with this. There's there's been massive political change, so in those days there weren't executive councillors, decisions were made by committees and, and the full council. Now you've got a leader who expects to make 12 decisions a day by themselves in a room and be advised and supported and questioning the chief exec on all of those. There's a lot more inspection, there's a lot more regulation. I would, I would These days I would know the name of the chief exec, because they'd be on Instagram, and they'd be—I'd be getting you know YouTube videos from them once a week with, with updates. Uh, demand for services gone up so much, funding is so much tighter, the complexity of the job it's just—it's just so different. So that you know, I, I can't see how anyone wouldn't agree with you that that things have really changed.
0: I just want to just take a just a, a few things you said there, which I just really want to just make the point and emphasize. I think the first thing is the availability of our leaders in terms of they are constantly available through digital digitalization of communication, of data transfer. I think there has been some progress made within diversity and inclusion, but there's still a long way to go. And I think that's that's a really important thing to represent progress, but also the work that needs to continue. And I think also expectations have changed. I mean, it's not just Amazon, but the Amazon effect. People expect more for less, faster. There's less tolerance for inefficiency. And I think also people are far more happy criticizing and they're not always criticizing with an informed judgment. And that's part of this podcast is to give people understanding as to what uh, local authorities, public sector organizations do. Okay. So just going on to that point there, why do you think our leaders, and in a way I think we've already answered this, but just to kind of just to reemphasize it, why do you think leaders when the public sector could feel more isolated and vulnerable now than they would have done, say, 15, 20 years ago?
1: Well, I well, we know we know for a fact that they do feel that way. Yeah, you're right, because there was a, a survey that the District Council's network released last year. Uh, so they surveyed council chief execs. 78% of council chief execs regularly feel vulnerable. So not just sometimes or now and then, but they regularly feel vulnerable. 86% called it a lonely job. So, so we know that's how they feel and I, th- I think there's four reasons from the conversations I have with chief execs from what they tell me so the, the first one is if you're a chief exec you hold a lot of secrets. so there's lots you know that you've been told in confidence or that you can't share publicly or you're given advance notice of something. So you're carrying these secrets around with you you know you know in the cabinet like which which cabinet member, leader is most afraid of because they know they're going to make a move on them the next time there's a as an election in their political group you know which of your chief officers is suffering with stress and whose marriage is collapsing because they're they're overworking you know these things but you have to be very careful all the time who do you tell about what who have you already told what have you already said so you're holding these kind of secrets and if and if we're chatting Matt and I'm holding a secret I'm, I'm holding something back from you you would know it you could tell I wasn't fully present in the conversation. I've put a barrier up, so you won't trust me quite so much. And I will, I'll feel a little bit distant from you because there's stuff I know I can't tell you. So that I think that's one reason. One is that, and we've touched on this, like the, the role of a chief exec is both to support and to challenge politicians. And politicians love the support, but they're not always so good with being challenged. And if you're challenging your leader, um, if you're pointing out to them some of the consequences of a policy they want to follow and how that might change and how what effect that might have on jobs or or priorities, if you're challenging them, that's also your boss who appoints you and who renews your contract and who brings you back in. So you constantly feel like could this could this challenging conversation be one of my last at this authority? And I you know I could be moved out. A um, couple of other things. So. we've touched on the kind of complexity. You've got billion pound organisations with thousands of staff and hundreds of services. And if anything goes wrong anywhere in that, you know, on a Monday, uh, that's, that could potentially end up on your desk as chief exec. You have to have a view about it. You have to work out what needs to be done. You have to brief the leader. So you're constantly in crisis mode if you're not careful and you don't, and some people really enjoy it. They get adrenaline from doing that. But that means they never pause to think, slow down and think strategically. So, so they come a cropper in the end. And the final thing, which I've heard come up in some of your podcasts, is that there's still in some places in local government, there's still this myth of a heroic leader. So the heroic leader always knows the answers. Everything comes from them. They've got all the strategies and the visions. They front up everything. They're in every meeting, every launch. Um, and the whole kind of energy and drive in the organisation depends on them. And there's, there are very different styles of being a chief exec. And some chief execs will ask more questions than they answer. So they'll say, I don't know. They'll, they'll give the limelight to some p- other people as part of their development. They'll be more supportive. And they're just as effective. Um, but the, if you want to be isolated, be, be the heroic leader, because you don't need anyone else. It's just you. And everyone else is in your kind of limelight, uh, and is and, and kind of plays a supporting role. So I think I mean those those kind of drivers are just getting more intense in the job, and it's it's why people do feel vulnerable and feel isolated.
0: It's I mean I was talking to Will Godfrey, the chief exec of Bath and North East Somerset, on the, one of the episodes where he was talking about the need for leaders to 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 share their experience and the the humanity is probably the wrong word, but their their human side, to show their vulnerability to their staff when they're feeling it, Nor as a means by which to duck against ability, but just to kind of show that they can't carry them all by themselves. And I can understand why. And again, I know you can't obviously name specific people that you've worked with because for confidentiality, but you've helped a number of chief executives, a number of leadership teams to develop these skills. And you know, provide an outlet and a support mechanism for leadership teams across the country, across different public sector organisations. Now, I know that the next question I'm going to ask you isn't the the solution. They can't have the, the Stuart Reed experience by simply a few answers to a few questions. It comes with a long kind of uh, process of of, of of upskilling and, and uh, collaboration. But what are the main tips to promote confidence and reduce vulnerability, do you think, in leaders across the public sector in the UK?
1: Uh, That's a very good question. Um, So I'll give you two. I'll I'll give you two. And the first one might be a bit surprising. So the first one is, um, I would say to a chief exec, particularly if you're new in post, accept very, very quickly that you will never meet everyone's expectations around you. Because when you're a chief exec, uh, everyone has a wish list of things they hope you'll deliver. And everyone thinks you're Father Christmas and you'll just give them what they want. So the the best definition of leadership, the one I like the most, is that leadership is about disappointing people at a rate they can bear. So you disappoint people at a rate they can bear. A rate they can bear is important. Don't go too far and too fast. So you have to be strategic. Who are you going to disappoint? Who's not going to get what they want? Who are you going to prioritise and how will you still keep your relationship with that person who will be disappointed? So leadership is about motivating people to make progress on their biggest challenges and overcoming a challenge always also includes a loss. There's always something that you give up in order to get what you want. So I think that's the, so
0: insightful just because I mean you're going back to a word that you used earlier, feeling lonely. Yeah. I think a lot of the time when I speak to a new chief executive and I won't name specific people but particularly those who it's their first appointment as a chief executive and the difference from going from an exec director post or a, a corporate director into that leadership role, suddenly you are Whereas you may have you're used to saying no to people within your directorate and being able to have more of a, a conversational or kind of peer relationship where there's uh maybe a slightly less formality. I think that's a very, very um if I can use the word wise, uh kind of first bit of advice to leaders to to have on their radar. Because I mean, as you said that, that must instantly take so much pressure off a leader, because I imagine it must be very quickly into their uh their term uh, or their new position, they go crap I can't I can't be everyone's friend and it's almost a case of no you can't I've got in my mind there's a Ron Bonson from a um I forget what the comedy was called where he goes I like saying no to people it makes me happy but it's, it's it is it is true what's number two what would you say is the second um piece of advice you give to people
1: well the the second one uh is find someone you can trust and who you can talk to about these things in confidence um, it's hard if you're a chief exec because you can talk to some of your peers but they're also your competition if they're if they're kind of local chief execs, you're both going for the same funding pots you're both going for the same big developments. so there's there's a limit to what you can do there. Um, but find someone who you who you can talk to talk things through with get challenge, get some support. Um, and that that could be me. That's what I do. It's that's who I work with um, day to day. Um, but it's it's important not to try to do it on your own and not to bottle all this stuff up because it will come out later.
0: I think the thing that the word that you've used to me when we've spoken over the years and the term that has been echoed by other chief executives, again, particularly it tends to be the newer chief executives is they're looking for a trusted friend, somebody that could not tell them what they want to hear, but can give them the constructive advice to feeling more in control. Stuart, where did this passion come from? Because you're you weren't always a leadership and a coach and mentor. You know, where did this idea come from for you to make this transition into this, you know, really important and interesting role?
1: Well, I I think some of it goes back to that door I pushed open on, onto that meeting when I was eighteen with this secret stuff going on behind the door and I I was really curious you know what do they actually talk about what decisions get made what happens here and I've kept that kind of fascination particularly with the chief exec role because it's the place where the politics meets the administration of the organization and you are like the sole fulcrum through which all of that is transmitted down, and you also have to transmit upwards what the what the organisation needs to people. So it's a complex role. And then more personally, um, my, I've got two kids. They're both at university. Uh, if I think about what the world's going to be like when they're 54, you know, how livable is it going to be? How will they have a home that they own at that age? Will you know what what will the health support be like for them? Um, and if they're going to have a livable, enjoyable good environment good place in which to live the public sector has a massive contribution to make particularly local government so if if through my work i can support those who are trying to achieve that and make the world a better place you know not to put too big a label on it but um that that motivates me as well
0: i feel very galvanized by the leaders that i talk to and people like yourself stuart because there is so much quality in the leadership across this country and public sector. And don't get me wrong, there is a huge amount that needs to to happen. Um, but there are some great people doing some great things. I want to talk to you about Offlog because you have a really interesting background because you were actually involved with the audit committee in its its first instance. Can you talk us a bit about that experience and kind of the perspective that's given you?
1: Yeah, so I worked at the Audit Commission for um, just over a decade uh, ar- around the, the, the turn of government, uh, change of government when, when the Labour government came in under Tony Blair. Um, and I, I see quite a lot of, um, I see more differences than similarities between Offlog and the Audit Commission. So there, there are definitely people in local government worried that it, that it is a new Audit Commission, um, which they know they don't want. Um, but one of the, one of the big differences I think is around independence so I think Offlog has some brilliant people in it and they are not going to be able to make it independent the way things currently are I'm very very happy to say more about that if that's if that's uh, useful and and talk about why
0: definitely I mean the the independence piece you and I've talked a lot about it off air Um, I mean this morning I was reading the MJ and there was an, an article there about how Essentially there's this this discourse that's happening between so the interim chair Lord Morse has said that the the offlog won't take, you know, when it's doing its findings as to why councils have ended up in financial distress uh due to central government, they won't talk about basically slagging off central government as basically they're only here because they didn't get enough funding. It's not about that. But then the committee chair, Clive Betts, said, well, if you can't lobby and express your own views in that way, how can you be truly independent? My question to you, Stuart, with your obviously experience as a leadership coach and as someone that's been part of the audit Committee is, do you think off-log can be independent? And either way, whether it is or isn't, can it be effective? Uh,
1: yeah, well, that, everyone wants to know the answer to that. I know, I know my answer. I, right now, it can't be independent that's really clear in the way that it's currently being set up. So, OFFLOG is literally an office of the central government department that that runs it. Um, we, We found out a week ago they need to get their business plan approved by the Secretary of State, so all the work that they're going to do, that needs to be signed off by the Secretary of State. Um, we know as well they they ran a pilot very recently a few weeks ago down in Oxfordshire, the first attempt to go locally and have a, have that difficult conversation they need to have, and a week before um, the the pilot happened, they were hoping to send a, a chief executive, a director of finance and, a, and an experienced leader, and the leader was pulled from the team because uh, they had to run the cast list past number 10, and number 10 said, no, we don't want that person there. He's been critical of the Prime Minister and of government policy. Um, so how can Offlog be independent if they're running the list of people that they want to send to do a pilot down in down in Oxfordshire past number 10? So th- I'd contrast that with aspects of the audit commission that you know I'll, I'll be very quick because it's all technical, but The Audit Commission was set up by legislation deliberately to be independent of local government and central government. Um, You talked about kind of challenging back to central government. The Audit Commission had a duty, not just a power, but a duty which meant it had to do this. It had to comment on central government policy whenever it had an impact on value for money in, in the public sector. So whenever something the government did, increased costs on other sectors, the Audit Commission was required to comment on that and, and talk about it, so that's independence. And the clever thing about the Audit Commission, it had its own funding stream, it had its own income, so it wasn't dependent on constant grants and negotiations with a central government department. It, it brought in its own fees. And did it bring in fees? uh through through the audit system so it had uh, had an arm that was an audit arm so 70 percent of local government audit was was run by district audit which the audit commission owned and the audit commission um charged fees through its auditors and it took a top slice uh, off the top of that to pay for all the central costs of running the audit commission all the research all the performance indicators all of the governance all of that work that was done all that research and development work so it didn't depend on grant from central government
0: that's the thing isn't it you know fundamentally if you if you, you can't bite the hand that feeds you mm-hmm. but fundamentally from my perspective you know i don't always want to be central bad local good because there is obviously a need for improvement on both aspects but you can't get away from the fact that central needs to fund local governments better or change the scope of their responsibilities and i guess the only reason where well, in my opinion the only reason why they are careful about who they select to lead off log in terms of into these reviews and and reports that come back is like you said earlier, they're just trying to disappoint less people less quickly, and it's just like, well, fine. But let's call a spade a spade. You know, if that's what you're doing, it it's you know that's fine. But that's you know fundamentally doesn't change the fact that there is this fundamental need for reform of the the finances and the way in which local authorities are paid. Um, so yeah, look, I, sure we've covered a lot there, and I just want to go back to those those points that you said there. Around advice for for leads in public sector, the first one and the second one. If you could just give us a quick summary, there's two clear points for our listeners at home to remember and to think about with this episode. Um, if you could just repeat those, words, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So remember that leadership is about disappointing people at a rate they can bear. So work out really carefully and quickly who you need to disappoint and how you let them down gently because they because they won't like it. So that's the first thing. Second thing, find a sounding board, find someone you can talk to in confidence who can help you find your own answer. To the problem that you are facing because what works for one chief executive in in one council needs to be different in your place your locality with your people and your issues and you need to find your own leadership style so find with some find someone you can work with talk to who can help you develop that.
0: Stuart thank you for your time it's generally been a really constructive conversation both to have with me and I hope for the listeners at home as well.
1: Matt I've loved it I've really enjoyed it so thanks for your warmth and your questions
0: you've listening to the truth about local government and also to our uh, our new arm truth about public sector well, we've been listening and talking to Stuart Reid who is a leadership coach to local authority chief executive leadership team and also to public sector more broadly leadership teams if you've enjoyed the content of what Stuart's been saying and you feel like you could benefit from that the link to the the, the, the hyperlink to his LinkedIn account is on this episode uh, chain on the, on the Spotify account so please click on that if you want to reach out to Stuart directly for any support but thank you again from us here at Attitude About Local Government, for tuning in. And please keep on giving us a good review and tuning back in and following us because we really do appreciate your ongoing support. Goodbye for now. Today's episode is sponsored by the UK Leisure Framework, the UK's only dedicated leisure framework. The UK Leisure Framework allows for the direct appointment of a development partner for scoping, design and construction of leisure, centres and sports facilities. The framework is available to all UK public sector organisations and has completed over 100 projects to date. For more information, visit leisureframework.co.uk